I came to shochu in probably the most backwards way possible in the sense that since we make everything from scratch at our distillery, um, I knew a fair amount of other styles of spirits, but we actually are one of the few distilleries in the U.S. that makes sweet potato vodka, vodka out of sweet potatoes. And we get 4,000 pounds delivered to our door. We chop them up, cook them down, open air fermentation, like I said, for everything. And um, with vodka, you're going to distill multiple times. But that first distillation of our sweet potato fermentation off of our pot still was was so intriguing. And I got really enamored with it. And I started thinking, what in the heck can I do with a single distilled sweet potato distillate? Someone to be around you Someone to sit down and pour you shochu But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way Sometimes that's when you finally find your space Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman. And as you can already tell, we're doing something a little bit different today. Earlier this year, I was in a liquor store in Denver, Colorado, and I discovered Emo Kasatori Shochu from the Denver Distillery. I was surprised and pleased and had to buy a bottle and bring it back to share with Christopher, but that sadly hasn't happened yet. Nevertheless, I was recently fortunate enough to spend an afternoon in the Denver Distillery with Chris Anderson Tarver, the head distiller uh, in downtown Denver, Colorado. Spur of the moment, I turned on my iPhone recorder on the distillery floor, and much to my surprise and honestly delight, the audio isn't horrible. So we're going to do a little episode about uh, what he's doing in making shochu in downtown Denver. It's a field recording, so uh, my apologies. It's not as produced as what you're used to from us here at Japan Distilled, but I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. It's very much a story of a distiller's process of discovery in making a spirit he didn't even know he wanted to make. Uh, So anyway, on with the show. And started doing some research. I was like, oh, wait, that's half of the equation, essentially, of a shochu. So foolishly, I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. That sounds great. You know, and then started doing more research and be like, oh, holy crap, you need to have koji involved. You have to have all these other aspects. So, I mean, if you look over here, <laughs> um, you'll recognize maybe some bottles over there. We, I, had, I mean, I literally had to go around and find, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, like, um, Oh, there, I have probably like five or six specifically emo shochu uh, bottles sitting around because I, I didn't even know what this stuff tasted like, tr- uh, to be quite frank. You know, we, we've, I went to raided a few liquor stores to try and find some of the classics. This one's phenomenal, of course. Um, where is it? Oh, of course, we've got your big hitters. Anyway, I couldn't find a ton, but the ones I found, I realized really quickly also, the range and style is just astronomical. And so that was also extremely inspiring to me. So we we went around, um, educated ourselves over the course of a year. Honestly, it took me a really long time. I actually listened to your guys' podcast to, to get some sense of the culture behind it. Um, I talked to Christopher online, actually. We had a great conversation uh, during the pandemic uh, really early on. Um, and then I realized the last piece of the puzzle for me was actually trying to figure out um, the Koji side of things. I have on my staff someone who's 
um, actually a, a master mushroom grower. He does it for culinary reasons. And I, him and I were talking a lot and he convinced me that our facility really isn't designed to handle koji properly in terms of humidity levels, temperature levels. I mean, we have this nice cellar basement that we have in our facility, but it's not quite the right sort of situation. So we ended up, um, there's a local sake brewery, Colorado Sake Company, that does incredible stuff. And I approached them and asked them if, originally I thought, since I'm so focused typically on our distillery with local products, if they could take local barley and basically have koji grow on that. And I was going to see if I could contract them to that. Their production schedule was way too busy, but the owner of the sake brewery was savvy enough to say, you know what? We have all this katsu that we throw away, basically. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, what can we do with that? Did some more research and found katsutori shochu, and, but I still was hung up on the sweet potato style that I really liked and fell in love with. So ended up coming up with this idea of uh, mixing the two together instead of using fresh rice and going from there and, you know, making our own, um, uh, you know, first ferment coming up with like, we're going to get that, get the katsu and go from there. So it was, it was um, a little bit of a, um, like I said, really ground up approach, but also ending up having what was available to me influence what ended up being the final product. And to be quite honest, we're still in early days for us. I mean, we're at batch number two. Batch number three should be happening in a month. Uh, so for us, it's uh, very exciting. We've already tweaked our recipe several times. Like, there's going to be more tweaking. Um, we're going to play around with, uh, I think, aging and resting some more if we can at some point. So it's an extremely fun uh, journey, but it's also, you know, the amount of education that I had to do was amazingly, you know, I tried really hard to get as much as I could in depth. And when I ended up coming up with the, that Imokatsu sort of um, hybrid, that's where I actually talked to Christopher because I was like, I don't know if this actually would qualify as a traditional shochu because I've not seen anyone do this that I can find online. But maybe that's just because I don't read Japanese and I'm like, don't know where to look on the Internet. Um, but he assured me that it would qualify because I was hellbent on having this be considered shochu in Japan. Like I wanted to follow the rules. And so... Uh, when he said that, I was like, "Great, green light, let's get going." Yeah, let me ask. Let me ask you a question about that. Did you referment the the kasu, the valise? Yeah. So what we do over here? Um, let me see. Oh, uh, actually, can I pause a second and help the uh, food truck? Stephen, back with you for a moment. Joining me now from Tokyo is my co-host Christopher Pellegrini. Unfortunately, he didn't get to join me in Denver, but uh, I wanted to welcome him back to Japan. Christopher, how are you doing? Good, good, good. Thank you for welcoming me back. It's it's really good to be back. I was actually in San Antonio at the time when you were in Denver. So theoretically, I could have flown up to hang out. I was with you in spirit, of course. This whole conversation about distilling in Denver, making shochu in Colorado, how Colorado is somehow mystically becoming this fulcrum, this hub this hot spot of shochu production is very exciting for me so i can't wait to hear more from chris yeah shochu in denver colorado now back in episode 23 we did talk about american shochu on the rise that there were a number of distilleries around the u.s making shochu and i think we talked about one of the distilleries in colorado uh, but it wasn't the denver distillery this was actually something i discovered earlier this year uh, had no idea that they were making shochu there but why don't we 
get back to the Denver distillery and hear about how Chris got started in trying to make the world's first sake lees sweet potato shochu. Yeah, let's go for it. I'd love to get my hands on the yeast variety that the sake company is using and see what that could do for us. Because I believe we're pitching, I have to look at my notes, but we've been, we play around with um, different beer yeasts a lot. So our bourbon, we, we actually use a Saison yeast to ferment our bourbon. Our rum, or actually our sweet potato vodka, we use an IPA style cookie yeast, which is really popular in the homebrew world right now, the, the style of yeast coming out of Norway. And then what is great about the Kivikist family is that they are very tolerant of high ABV environments, very hardy, but they produce pretty burly esters. Um, and the style that we're going for is like kind of tropical fruits on our sweet potato vodka. And so for, um, um, in fact, it's almost like a, a adjacent IPA strain. So when we're pitching our traditional yeast that we use for our vodka, we're throwing that in the mix too, which is like, whole nother level that we may maybe should be more careful about because <laughs> it's definitely not a traditional style yeast for in any way shape or form but we love that you know it does this sort of um um these kind of guava notes on the nose with our sweet potato ferment traditionally and a couple other things like almost like a hop like aroma because of the ipa sort of sort of family that we use um so we love what again that's another thing that drew us to the sweet potato style to begin with is just some of the aromas that you can get off even in the fermentation stage it's quite frankly my favorite fermentation that we do so no for so like i said um when we came up with this sort of irreverent i guess creative style that we didn't realize we were really doing at the time it it fit the bill for me in terms of i knew i wouldn't be um since i knew from the get-go i couldn't satisfy that whole um approach of really making a, almost like a shochu as they would in Japan in terms of that traditional methodology. So for us, um, coming up with this sort of, uh, we're taking waste from a you know brewery, the Lees, we're using the sweet potatoes that we already are known for for our vodka and creating this fits the bill as a honkaku shochu, but still coming up with like, this is a little bit left to center. It's something that maybe no one's really seen much before it really made us much more comfortable with doing something and not just being like, oh, hey, this cool Japanese spirit, we're just going to try and do it ourselves, you know, for no apparent reason. Um, more, it came out of this, again, love of the sweet potato distillate that we were coming up with already for the vodka and moving it in the direction of what would qualify as a shochu. So, and the irony is we didn't even know this at all until the, you know, um, until we dove into it, Denver is now the de facto shochu capital of, of the U.S. because we have two other distilleries making shochu here. And we had no clue <laughs> at the time. Um, fortunately, one of the other ones, um, Stephen Gould up in Golden Moon, he makes, um, it's actually not a hunkaku, it's a multiple distilled barley mugi shochu. Um, and he, he's actually, he lived in Japan for a little while. And so I actually approached him and, and kind of actually had him taste some early batches that we had. And he was really helpful and because his style and the, our two different shows are like worlds apart. Um, and so it was great to have a little, even in Colorado, we're fortunate with distilleries to have a pretty convivial atmosphere, especially with the smaller ones. So having him um, give some pointers and you know, feedback in terms of, oh yeah, this is great. Maybe consider doing that also helped us be like, yeah, we're on the right direction because we're so isolated here. Otherwise, like, Having um, someone who actually knows a little bit about shochu is worth its weight in gold for us. 
why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> no question. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, but yeah, the, the whole process has been wonderful. I think, like I said, the next, besides tweaking our recipes, the next phase, I think, for us, make more because we're actually currently out. But, um, and it, we're dependent on the socket company's brewing schedule for that, which is such a different schedule than what we're used to already. But um, I would love to tinker with aging and uh, go from there. Stephen, back with you again for a quick moment. Christopher, it's pretty amazing to me that there are now three distillers in Denver alone making shochu. Denver, Ironton, and Golden Moon. This is unbelievable. It's unprecedented, actually. There are so many places in the country that have, of course, very robust craft brewing traditions that you would think would naturally lead to very, very adventurous craft distilling traditions. And Denver certainly would rank among the top of those, but it still is very surprising that you just had all of these very passionate people congregated in the same area that kind of figured out Koji around the same time. So it should be a really fun part of the world, not just America, a fun part of the planet to watch invigorate this uh, ancient brewing technique from Japan. And they're going to add their own spice to it. They're going to add their own interpretations and their own ways of, you know, they're going to stretch it and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Sure. I mean, we, we were aware of Ironton because they had made a sake lee's shochu from Colorado Sake Company, which is actually the same place that Chris gets his, basically his, his lees uh, to make his product. And so those made sense. But then this Golden Moon distillery, I didn't know about until I visited the Denver distillery that they're making barley shochu. Now it's not in an authentic style because they're using a column, but the guy who's making it actually lived in Japan and knows a little bit about shochu. So they've actually been able to help together and start this little community of distillers working together to try to figure this out. So yeah, uh, really, really fun to see what direction they end up taking. And I mean, we know that American craft distillers can be very creative. And when it comes to shochu, it's basically a blue ocean for these guys. If they are using single pot distillation, a koji source and local agriculture, it's basically shochu without all the arbitrary legal hangups that happen to Japanese distillers all the time. Yeah, certainly true. One caveat that I would offer is the fact that the U.S. government has in the past, they have established and continue to sort of repeat a reverence for whatever the laws of the land are in the origin of the uh, distilling or the, the brewing country, the, the country of origin. They tend to just default to those rules. So whatever, you know, brandy of Jerez or whatever it is, whatever it happens to be that's coming into the United States, the U.S. doesn't really know what it is. They will defer to whatever restrictions, whatever guardrails are put on the process in that foreign country. So I would I would just offer that to anybody who's out there thinking that uh, it's a wide open playing field. It may be right now. Who knows what will happen in the future, though? Sure, sure. I mean, if this leads to the TTB actually recognizing shochu as a spirits category, that would be pretty cool. Oh, I will probably die from joy. <laughs> I think I, I will not know what to do with myself. I will have to resist the temptation to just ride off into the sunset. Uh, I will not have earned that right, but that will be the damn day. That'll be, that'll be a pretty big moment. I, I, I think we'll get there. I hope we'll get there. Anyway, uh, why don't we get back to Denver and hear about Chris's production process and maybe a little bit about his distilling philosophy. Mm-hmm. 
walk me through your fermentation. So our process. fermentation process, yeah. And again, this was born almost out of necessity, which is so fun. Um, the way that we we get sweet potatoes first, our sweet potatoes are grown in Mississippi, um, N and W Farms. The they're the nicest people in the world, and I can barely understand them when I talk to them on the phone. Randall is the guy who takes care of us. So we get four thousand pounds delivered. Um, They've been refrigerated about 60 degrees, and we get them down here. We actually have a walk-in cooler of this ramp that can handle. Uh, we have a, a thermostat, so we put it to 60 degrees to keep storing it at that optimal temperature. Then what we'll do is we, we don't actually peel our sweet potatoes, which I know there's some variance there. Um, there's a machine over there that is essentially um, a, wood, a food-grade wood chipper for sweet potatoes that we built ourselves. That it, it, We took a beer keg and cut it in half and put blades inside and attached it to a, a two horsepower motor and, and really went to town with that one. We, it was a really fun fabrication project that we made. We pulverize the sweet potatoes, chop them into small bits and then throw them into our mash tun. At that point, so we're, you, we're cooking them down at that point. Okay. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And so you're, you're essentially boiling them. Yeah. Boiling? We don't ever get up to boil um, okay. temps. But you're, um, you're submerging them in water. We are completely submerging them in water. Okay. We, we have a paddle that stirs them around, to, and we will do like a long and slow cook time. Okay. Um, the okay. idea for us is we are going to get the, the basic cells to break down into that sort of baby food-like consistency. And for us, again, the reason why we do that is we actually want to ferment with as much of the, um, why don't you call it the pulp, but the, the material of the sweet potatoes, the sludge, if you will, in the fermentation. And our facility is designed not to typically handle solids that way. And so normally, like when we do a whiskey, for instance, we will strain out the bulk of our grains. Like there's still plenty of solids, but, the, you know, we're actually shoveling out the solids at the end of the day, almost like a beer would. Um, so to allow us to be able to ferment with most of the sweet potato matter still in there, we are going to cook it down to a really, uh, you know, relatively liquidy consistency. It, I mean, it's, like I said, porridge or baby food would be the greatest analogy. Then we're going to pump that into one of our fermenters, let it cool down. And actually it's cooled down by and large overnight because we let it sit overnight. And how, how long do you do that cooking process? So it will start in the morning and it will be done the next morning. Okay. Uh, the actual that time, so our kettle is steam powered. So the time that that kettle, um, you know, is it, actually heating up is probably about a four to five hour period, and then we just let it sit overnight because it keeps that heat pretty well in there in that steam jacketed kettle. And then you, and then once you're in your ferment, your fermenters, what's the process you get? So it's we'll we'll see if it needs cooling down some more. Sometimes it does, and we have a submerge we, we submerge it with a cooling like coil system that's very common, and then. We will then roll out um, our drum full of katsu and then just shovel it in. Um, we, it's around the ratio for us. Uh, we're, we're playing around, and this is actually where we've been tweaking our recipe. We started off with about 400 pounds of sweet potatoes um, and then dumped in, I think we're around 300 pounds of katsu. Um, don't quote me on that one. And then we are, we're, we tinkered with almost an equal ratio last time. Okay. Uh, and that changed the rest. I mean, the flavor changed dramatically. And we're probably going to push back towards having the majority be immo, like the sweet potato. Um, and then uh, it just, because the katsu, like we said, is very much alive, it starts bubbling away right away. And so we let that, uh, we let it sit for about um, the first time, I think we did about a week and a half. 
I think the second time we did about two-week fermentation. Okay. The nice thing about where we're standing right now, which is essentially a cellar, um, we're at this temp pretty much year-round. And so uh, kind of in the winter, it gets a little bit cooler, and so our fermentation slow down slightly. But uh, we benefit from having a very even sort of situation, but it's also because it's not actually that warm down here typically, we can get away with a little bit longer ferment times than you would see maybe with a different type of facility that's above ground that isn't as temperature controlled um, or maybe doesn't have an actual set system. We don't have a system that is temperature controlling our fermentations at all. It's, we do not have jacketed fermenters, <laughs> as no, you can I'm tell. Standing here in front of them and their Cypress fermentation tanks from the stills of Alabama, and they're beautiful. Yeah, we'll, we'll put, we'll put uh, pictures in the show notes. And it's, it's great in the sense that um, because the katsu is doing its thing, it, there's, there's in some ways very little maintenance that we have to do in the fermentation. It, it's ready to go. It's going to do that sacrification in situ with the sweet potatoes. Um, we do, I mentioned earlier, we do pitch yeast a little bit later on in the fermentation just to make sure that that yeast uh, fermentation is alive enough to convert um, the the you know all the sugars over to alcohol but the other thought is is that we don't fully know since we haven't really kept track of the katsu from beginning to end um or i should say the the sake process um we don't know how viable that yeast is Mm -hmm. so we think it's pretty viable but our thought was um and without having too much testing let's let the sacrification process take place and then we'll pitch yeast and when we think it's probably converted a whole bunch of the starches from the sweet potatoes over gotcha. so it's like a double sort of pitching if you will yeah do you stir it all do you, do you we do a little bit yeah. yeah yeah so we um we have uh this wonderful um this is actually a, a specific type of drill that we use and on there is a you know just a paddle on the bottom not a wooden stirring situation like you would normally see um, so it's just a little, and it, it stirs very well. We have to be careful though, because we fill these up pretty high. Um, we've had numerous situations where we'll stir something and it just makes the fermentation explode because there's so much CO2 trapped in there. Sure. If it's a little too viscous, that means that all that CO2 gets released at once. And then yep. all of a sudden you have sweet potato sludge all over your floor. Sure, <laughs> so sure, sure. we do, we try and go a little kind of long and slow, but, um, yeah, we do stir a little bit, oxygenate. The nice thing with open air is you don't typically have to worry about oxygenation too much but because there is a fair amount of solids in there we're going to try and oxygenate it a little bit yeah. give it that little extra you know again helping along the fermentation any way we can yeah. your the, your koji is going to stay more active if yeah. it's oxygenated yeah. as well so yep no we, we do we probably should do it a little more often i think we did maybe over a course of a week plus we maybe did it like every other day but mm-hmm. probably i've done some research since then and we're probably going to do it more often and then, so once you finish the fermentation, it goes into your pot still. Is that right? Single distillation pot still. Um, we pump the whole kit and caboodle up into there. And um, one of the one of the fascinating things you run into, um, I, I'm somewhat aware of of the traditional pot still styles, like everything from wooden to stainless in Japan. One of the pop, becoming more popular ways of designing a still here in the U.S. is doing things that are still considered pot stills, but may not be considered single distillation in some settings. So we actually have a thump keg on our pot still. And so if anyone's not familiar with a thump keg, it's also known as a doubler. Um, You have your traditional looking pot still, which is kind of, you know, bulbous, big kettle, a column on top that has sort of minimal geometric changes to it. It's definitely not a refracting column still that if people have ever seen a vodka being made, that's that would be not what we're doing. 
Um, and once the vapor goes through that main column, it will actually get pushed into um, a secondary vessel, much smaller, that has liquid filled on the bottom. And the pipe that leads that vapor is submerged with whatever liquid. So oftentimes people use water. Sometimes they'll take some of the, the, you know, the fermented liquid that you're distilling and put that in there. And that steam actually then, uh, obviously because it's liquid and it's cooler, uh, pools in that secondary vessel, the thumb keg and starts filling up with liquid, but it's also transferring heat over because it's hot vapor. And so eventually that secondary vessel um, uh, heats up enough that it will actually produce its own vapor off of the liquid and uh, create a, and it's it's hard to describe in this sense because some people consider it a second distillation, some people think of it as a half distillation, um, but it will then create vapor again and then that will work its way out and hit a condenser and come out. So our shochu, Definitely pot still, single distillation, but it does work through one doubler, which is mm -hmm. one of those, again, like as an American, this is very, I would call my bourbon is double distilled, mm -hmm. but they, they, we have some interesting things that we had to think through about like, would this be okay? Would this not be okay? We're not entirely sure. Right. That's what we're doing. I mean, we've certainly seen what look like thumpers in, in Japanese okay. distilleries. So I, I don't think you're completely awesome. out of line there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of the things I have, again, working from the ground up on this and not having any knowledge of Japanese distillation culture. This is something that I was like, you know, you don't lose sleep over it, but you're like, I really would like to know. And you don't get to know until you talk to someone who knows more about it. So sure, yeah, sure. great. Um, so, uh, and then we're going to do our cuts. So, in our facility, we do almost, quite frankly, we do everything organoleptically. Like it's all going to be um, using our senses. So we don't really pay attention to ABV. We don't pay attention to anything other than what our nose and our tongue is telling us. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's some, there is, um, there's plenty of wisdom in looking at temp, still temperature, column temperature. Um, the ABV, what's coming off your still, and I think by and large that can be extremely helpful. And we do sort of pay attention to that, but. In my book, um, there's so many variables that are out of my control with open air fermentation. There's so many variables, um, you know, that I'm not going to try and um, push in a certain direction. I want there to be a little bit of a randomness to. So for us, um, our nose and our palate is part of that process. And we really want there to be... Um, that's what's judging it in the end anyway, right? As the customer drinks it and smells it and sees it and tastes it. If it passes what we think is our smell and taste test, we hope it goes the other way. So in that sense, we're very much of, of a, you know, it's very hands-on and not at all automated. <laughs> sure. I actually couldn't tell you, I, we record it, but I don't have it memorized like where we did our, say our heads cut and our hearts cut and all that stuff. Um, but it, it makes it for, you know, you really, you are really paying attention. <laughs> you sit at that still and you watch it and you're tasting it and, you know, throughout the entire process, which is great because you really get to know that distillation, mm -hmm. which is, that's the, what I love about it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really fun way to do it, especially since you're batching everything. You're yeah. not trying to come up with a single recipe that you're just going to make one product. Yeah. You're doing it more in a craft beer style where you're just making different styles of different things. No. Different and I, as we'll taste later, our batch one or batch two tastes quite different. And that's tweaks in recipe, tweaks in how we distilled things. And that's part of the great thing about being a craft distillery. Our customers are very aware that we're, it's an evolving process and we don't have like the traditional standard that we're trying to make or ever will produce. So um, it's, it's always a little bit of a journey that people can embark with us as we, as distillers, try and come up with these different products. Um, we do try often to settle on something that we find just fits the bill, but it, 
in the meantime, even then, we have like our, our gin. Um, we must have gone through 30 iterations of that. And we still, every once in a while, tweak it just slightly, you know, which is, a, I hope, make, keeps people on their toes. Sure. That's uh, I know, and, the, and the idea is that we're constantly trying to improve the process, you know, as, as I think a lot of craft people like to do. Um, but yeah, and then um, we let our shochu rest. As I mentioned, actually, before, we do proof it down slightly with some of our filtered Denver water that we have here. Um, it's interesting in the spirits world, there's very active debate right now as to what types of water to use for the like soft water, hard water. One of the, my pet peeves is reverse osmosis water. Um, a lot of distilleries use that where you're basically stripping everything out of the water to just pretty much just H2O, taking all the minerality content out. Um, there's some, there's plenty of reasons to that. You, you have way less variables that you're playing with. Again, I'm very cool with variables. So <laughs> we really go for, um, uh, we want some of that minerality to come through because we really believe that it affects the mouthfeel, some of the aromas, um, it, how it interacts with, the, you know, some of the esters and some of the, quite frankly, some of the different oils that we come through in the, in our spirits. So we're very happy and we'll probably keep doing that, still playing around with adding some measure of water to our shochu. Um, and how long do you rest it for before you bottle it? Right. So we try to do a minimum of three months, which is pretty fast. Um, I would like, as we get more batches, to start playing around with longer rest times. The other thing, as you can tell, there's no space down here, but eventually I would love to get my hands on some ceramic vessels and see how that plays with it, because we've only ever done stainless so far. Right. Uh, again, that's what we had on hand. The other part of the puzzle that was really fascinating for us was the ABV. That ended up throwing us a quite interesting curveball. I know that 25% is, by and large, the traditional ABV, but we really had um, an interesting time testing out on friends who, by and large, just don't experience that 25 ABV in a favorable, when it comes to spirits at least, clear distillates, in a favorable sense. They all came across as like, this just tastes so watered down. You know, like that culture isn't here. Sure. So we ended up making the decision um, you can always water down later. Let's let's go for a forty percent, what we would consider close to full strength, and see how it plays. Mm -hmm. And it came across, I thought, well, uh, but and it also, I think, satisfied our Western palates a mm -hmm. little bit more because yeah, no that that culture isn't quite. I think you can learn to appreciate it, and you learn how to drink it, and you're like, oh, let's do you know highball, let's do it with uh, 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 the hot style. Oh, you are, yeah. Oh, you are. But the idea is that. Um, we, I felt like we had to adapt slightly to the drinking culture here. Of course. So and, that's and, where we ended up. And honestly, the 25% is completely driven by tax. Right, right, right. So, right. you know, if you can bottle at full strength, it's still strength, or you want to water it down a little bit yeah. to get a little bit of yeah. texture from your local water. So that's actually what we ended up doing. Our, our distillation, um, we do not go, uh, I mean, I know some of the ones on my shelf are there. They're, they're not adding any water. Like, it's just all the tails essentially bringing in that proof down. We ended up deciding to do a little bit cleaner because we knew we wouldn't have the the luxury of letting it rest super long, mm -hmm. um, which to me is something really tails -y, really would probably benefit from a, you know, multiple years in stainless or ceramic or something like that. Sure, sure. So we ended up trying to do a little bit cleaner distillation cuts than maybe would have been traditional in certain settings, especially with an emo shochu, and ended up adding some water to bring it down. The, I think, if I remember my notes, I'll have to look back. We were at almost 50% energy by the time we are done. So oh, we that's were, really early cuts. Yeah, yeah, it was actually. We were pretty conservative. We might play around with that. Or maybe it was 45. But either way, we ended up adding a small amount of water 
or Rocky Mountain water here. Sure. And it was, it added some, we have some interesting uh, mineral notes here. Uh, it's a kind of a softish water, but not depending on the season. Mm -hmm. So we have pretty, it's actually one of the funny things around here is we have, even though we use city water, um, we filter it, but we also have pretty variant. There's a lot of variability in terms of snow melt versus stuff that's been sitting in a reservoir. Sure. And so we actually have to pay attention to that pretty closely. I bet you do. Yeah, it's great. And it's a, you know, it's a fun problem to have because it's like we, by and large, it's still really good water. <laughs> sure. Yeah, you, <laughs> you know, luxury. Oh, we really do. It, a little plug. I think that uh, Japan is still, you guys should do a whole episode on aging. It, it's in the works. It's, All right. It's planned. Great. It's planned. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. Because there's, I think that's one of the ones that, um, that's one of the steps that a lot of, I think there would be, you'd be surprised at how much interest there is out there that I think there's still not a ton of information on. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Especially given the rules in terms of color and all that stuff. Right. You know? Right. So we've, we've talked about doing some sort of wood aging. I, again, that's something I'm not familiar enough to know. Um, and that could be something that we could step out in terms of that traditional style as being a U.S. Right. shochu distillery. Yeah. That's, that's a UK Japan treaty thing. That yeah, has yeah. nothing to do. No. With what so we could be. theoretically create a very aged shochu and get away with it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and so that's something we've please, actually, okay. All right. We've considered it <laughs> and we've even considered, um, like whether it would be something like a used barrel, a spent, you know, spent yeah. barrel or something brand new. Um, yeah, there's something that yeah. we've, we've talked about it many times. Very, very cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time and explaining your process to us. It's and, my pleasure. Uh, really happy to have you on Japan Distilled. Anytime. Thanks a lot. That was a lot of fun. Very glad I decided to turn on my iPhone recorder and even happier that it didn't sound terrible. Like complete bunk, yeah. Yeah, maybe more field recordings in the future. Sorry, Rich. <laughs> yeah, he's... he's uh currently like busting his knuckles into his table under his keyboard right now he's like oh these bastards yeah i'm guessing i'm going to get a, a lengthy uh message explaining all of the uh, kind of field equipment i'll need to do this properly and i, I will gladly comply <laughs> if it'll fit in my suitcase and not not put me overweight so yeah. <laughs> anyway <laughs> yeah i think what's so interesting about what he's doing is he's so early in the process he's still in in the period of discovery and he really does approach this as a craft beer brewer. He's not trying to make a consistent brand and make the same thing repeatedly over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so he he varies his recipe, he varies his his methods, he varies his cuts. He, he really is in in this creative mode. And I'll, I'm really curious to see where, where he ends up with this because he's already making a pretty beautiful uh, sweet potato vodka, which uh, was what inspired the whole thing for him in the first place. Oh. Um, yeah. Have you tried his shochu by chance? I have not no i have not you say sweet potato vodka do you mean that this is not a column distilled or it's like minimally column it's hybrid what do, do you have any uh of the deets on that yeah his vodka is actually column distilled he's got he's got three stills uh in this very tiny distillery the distillery is a, it's basically a, a a bar and then uh his fermentation and, and aging spaces in the basement but his stills are up in what would probably be the kitchen in a normal bar and he's got three of them. He's got a, 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 I believe, I know he's got a pot. I think he has a, a fractional and a column. And his vodka is, is made in the column, but he's, he's actually fermenting sweet potatoes. He's just extracting the sugars through, through boiling them, basically, and then pitching yeast and making a sweet potato vodka. And it's good. It's like, I, you know, I don't say anything nice about vodka ever. I, I was tempted to buy a bottle of his vodka. Wow. Yeah, that's that's strong praise coming from from this vodka lover. Um, yeah, so 
it's it's cool stuff that he's doing. He he makes he makes whiskeys, he makes gin. He's done 30 different variations on his gin. He's just still trying to find the right recipe, you know. Mm-hmm. And he likes he likes to tweak things a little bit and as he said during the episode, he'll he'll tweak his gin and whoever likes his gin is going to find the next batch a little bit different and hopefully the consumer likes that. You know, he's not looking to scale. He's not looking to build this up and sell it for, you know, ungodly amounts of money to to Diageo or whoever. He just wants to make great spirits locally and have people enjoy them. So I, I like his philosophy quite a bit. I was able to taste uh, his his sweet potato shochu, and he was he opened his last bottle of batch one for me actually, uh, which was a, a treat. And and then I could compare it to batch two. And in batch one, it was pretty balanced between the leaves and the and the potatoes, where you you got a lot of rice. It's a lot more than you would ever get from a a, a sweet potato shochu from Japan because it was almost a 50-50 balance. Whoa! And then in in the batch two, he actually had more leaves than potatoes and it became the rice sort of set it all out of balance. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what happens with batch three, where I think he's going to go more potato heavy and see what comes out at that end. Number one is actually quite interesting. It's it tastes like a shochu, but it just has it has more rice character than you would expect. And um, obviously it was his first ever batch, so it's not going to be perfect. But, you know, 40 percent ABV. I think it would go well with dilution. It's a pretty, pretty tasty drink. So he should be proud of what he's done. And, and I think he's got some pretty exciting future expressions uh, coming our way. And hopefully we'll get to try it. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I, I think that uh, especially when people look at, at shochu labels, sweet potato shochu labels in the United States, and they see that a lot of them say 87% sweet potato, 13% uh coalified rice or or just rice on the on the front label mm-hmm. and then you're going you're swinging all the way to 50 50 that i would love to try those side by side just because you know the former is way more japanese and the latter is way more just working with the ingredients and the volume of those ingredients that you have on hand mm-hmm. and working with the things that you're confident in and obviously probably for him working with rice is, is something that's a little bit more of a comfort zone than working with sweet potatoes at this point or at this stage in the game for him. I wonder, I have so many questions. I have so, so, so many questions. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. He, he, he did a great job and it was all just basically him riffing. And that's why I wanted to record it. Cause I realized as soon as he started talking, like this is really good stuff to hear a distiller, basically like just free train of thought, putting it out there, what he's thinking about when he's working on something in a category he knew virtually nothing about. I mean, he, he talks in the episode about how he went out and he bought all of the sweet potato shochu he could buy, and virtually everything on his shelf was from Satsuma Distillery, mm. like one of the big boys from Kagoshima. Uh, and the bottle he picked up and said, this one's really good, was Kudadashi Genshu, right? The 40%. Uh, okay. It hits his his sweet spot because he's used to high-proof spirits. Gotcha. And you know, and he's cutting so early, right? He's not, he's not giving us the tails that give, you, give us all of that sweet potato character that we would expect. Uh, all of those aromas that you desire from a sweet potato shochu in Japan. But I think he was nervous. I think he was worried about what those tails would taste like and what they would do to the final product. Yeah. I mean, he's gone through 30 iterations. He would, he would have to go through 300 iterations of just dealing with the tails and figuring out where the cut points are. Yeah. You know, not knowing anything about the maturation process too. You know, mm-hmm. so there's a lot of risk in there. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's what he he actually would like to do is run run the tails longer and then age it for longer. He only uh, aged these for about three months before bottling with his first couple of runs. Okay, uh, but I think he he realizes that the, the the 
the funk in the tails is going to take more time to 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 settle down. Um, but he's willing to try. Love it. And he does want to do some barrel aging, which would be cool. So, man, good for him. Yeah, yeah, fun stuff. That's a a level of creativity and and just curiosity that I aspire to. So I'm I'm a big fan of that. You and I've been to dozens, hundreds of distilleries in Japan. Have you ever heard of a sake lee's sweet potato shochu? No, I have not. Me either. And I think it's pretty cool. Yep. I'm a fan of, of sake lee's shochu generally. And of course, I'm a fan of sweet potato. And I think it's going to be tricky to get like a perfect balance between the two. But as long as the, the lees aren't too ginjo yeasty forward, you know, if you can, if you from an atmospheric distillation and if the, if the sake yeast that's being used is relatively reserved, I think it could work. So I'm really curious to see what, what he ends up doing. Save me a bottle, Chris. <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've still got the one I've got. Unfortunately, what I have is batch two. So I get to try the one that's more, more leaves forward, but we'll, we'll try it together next time we see each other down here in Fukuoka. Cool. It's a heavy bottle hmm. and it's a, it's a pop top. So I'm not going to try to carry that back from Tokyo, uh, but I'm sure you'll be down here sooner rather than later. Yep. No, guaranteed. I, uh, you know, we both know that Kyushu is a gigantic magnet for me so <laughs> no question i'll be there soon enough i mean it just stuck me here i don't even leave if i don't have to it's pretty powerful no no doubt well christopher thank you for joining me today it was an absolute pleasure yeah. bouncing these ideas off of you and getting your getting your thoughts on this and look forward to lifting that glass with you yeah right back at you cheers great to learn more about what the denver distillery is doing please check out their website denverdistillery.com or you can check out their Instagram at Denver Distillery. And I'm sure Chris has lots of exciting things to share with us now and in the future. Anyway, thank you all very much for listening. If you have not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you listen. It really helps others find the show. And please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Japan Distilled on either of those platforms. I am not on TikTok or anything else. And also check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes on this and every episode. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host, Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time.